Well, good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to the LSE. Um, my name is Imran Mia. Um, I'm a, a novelist, and so the title of tonight's talk is particularly intriguing to me. And the title of tonight's talk is Can Imagination Change the World? Um, I'm reading one of uh, David Graeber's books at the moment, and he uh, retells a, a joke about a village um, near the border between Poland and Russia. Um, and the village used to be in Russia, and then at some point the border is moved. Um, and the villagers are, are overjoyed by finding themselves in Poland. Um, and when they're asked why they're so pleased about the change, uh, the reply is, well, we won't have to endure those dreadful Russian winters anymore. Um, <laughs> so perhaps imagination can even change the weather. Um, Yet so many of the ideas that we use to criticize, reform, or even accept the world as it is do come from the imagination. Um, and I should say that as well as being a novelist, I run a think tank. Um, and in a way, I wonder if that means that I lack faith in the power of imagination to change the world. Uh, that as well as writing novels, I seem to think that building statistical models or talking to regulators or writing responses to government policy consultations is also sort of important to changing the world. Um, or perhaps it's thinking that that is in itself an act of imagination. Um, anyway, I'm very much looking forward to the lecture. And as I'm sure you all know, Professor Calhoun is director and president here at the LSE. He is a world-renowned social scientist whose work connects sociology to culture, to communications, to politics, philosophy, and economics. Um, for Twitter users in the audience, um, I think the hashtag might be up on the screen as well. It's hashtag LSCLitFest, um, and there's a clue in that, which is that tonight's lecture is also the opening of the LSE Literature Festival. Um, so please don't switch off your phones. Um, we do want you to tweet using that hashtag. Um, but please do turn them to the silent setting um, so as not to disturb the lecture. Um, this evening's event is also being recorded, and so a podcast of it should be available, subject to any technical issues. Um, and after the lecture, um, I think we're going to have plenty of time to get into questions and answers. But for the moment, please join me in welcoming Professor Calhoun to deliver his lecture. My thanks to Emran for that very nice introduction, both to our theme and to me, and my thanks to Luis Gaskell and to everybody involved in the LSE Literary Festival, one of the great annual events of LSE. It's my pleasure and honor to be able to kick it off. And All right, kick it off with a question. Can imagination change the world? Well, of course imagination can change the world. Now, that's not the end of the talk. But... You would guess in a literary festival that I was not going to take the position that no, imagination has no influence. It is merely fantasy. It is merely recreation. Um, now, as Emron suggested, there are other kinds of influences on changing the world. I don't mean that the world is changed only or sufficiently by imagination. I don't mean that we can just want things to be and imagine how they should be and that will happen. But I do mean in important ways that the idea of a sharp opposition between what you might think of as hard reality and mere imagination is specious. Okay? Now, this itself is a way of imagining things, to imagine that the world is divided into fiction and nonfiction, as though the nonfiction 
weren't made and crafted and written in the bookstore, as though the world is simply facts, right, that don't need interpretation on the one side, and fantasies, acts of the imagination on the other. It's a much more complicated relationship between the two. So when I talk about imagination tonight and its role in changing the world or also stabilizing the world and making it sometimes rather fixed, I don't mean simply wish fulfillment or fantasy. I don't mean not a bit of that, though. That is, I think part of what we imagine sometimes is shaped by wish fulfillment, and wish fulfillment even draws us in to limits on our imagination because we focus on things that are within our existing repertoire of wishes and sometimes don't think beyond it. So wish fulfillment and fantasy can be influential, but what I mean is a way in which imagination is part of reality, a support for reality, enables, facilitates, shapes even very material realities. There's sort of a trivial sense of that in the idea that the architect imagines the house before building it, but the house is a material reality. The hard facts of the furniture have been in some ways imagined, but this goes still further and in still more complicated ways into some things that don't exist, that aren't things without being imagined, and without that imagining being reproduced continuously so that they exist. So when I say imagination gives shape to material realities, I don't just mean it determines that there are rounded corners on this table or something. I mean that there are major forces and factors in the world that have material influence on our lives that do not exist except in part through imagination. It makes some realities possible. And that then is the condition for making some changes possible. One of the most basic conditions of change is recognizing that what exists is not necessary and inevitable, is not the only way things could be, that things could to some extent be different. We'll come back to that. But take nations as imaginary objects. Nations are pretty powerful, pretty real. They have a big influence. We're very invested in nations. We worry about national sovereignty. Have we lost some of it by being in Britain? What would it mean to regain it if Britain exited? What is the relationship to immigration? Is our nation losing some of its identity because of this? And in much of this conversation, we rather unreflectively accept the notion that there are nations. Not just the notion of ours, whatever country ours might be, but the very idea that there are nations. We believe in the world that way. And I want to suggest nations are real, they exist, they influence us, and they exist partly because they are imagined. If you look at the world from space, there are no borders. Now, that doesn't mean the borderless world is simply the real, because those borders have men, soldiers, with guns. 
They have passport controls. They have effects. They have taxation regimes inside them that can't be extended outside them. They are not somehow mere fantasy. That the world is organized into nation states isn't an illusion, okay? but it does depend on a form of imagination. It's an imagination that is reproduced every time you look at a map or a globe that has those different gray and green and tan countries on it, right? The imagination isn't just free-flowing creativity, everyone thinks for themselves, but it is an imagination that is reproduced with some prompts, like the globe, that lead us to imagine the world as a world of nations, so that when you think of the world, you are as apt to think of the globe with all of those different colored nation states and the lines separating them, as you are to think of the less differentiated geography of the world as seen from space. Now, it happens we have Africa featured here, where all of these countries have a history that is shaped, among other things, by colonialism and by projects of drawing these lines. So many of these lines are quite straight, right? Because they were determined at a conference where people sat down and said, let's put the line here, right? Some of them do reflect more natural boundaries like rivers and things, but many of them don't. Now, this isn't a talk about the history of Africa and colonialism, but it's a very strong example of how something has been put in place historically that matters materially but that is reproduced in part in imagination. And the ability to imagine that things could be differently is one of the possible factors in change in the world. Let's go on. Imagining nations right, isn't just a matter of imagining globes. Many of you, I hope all of you, will know this particular picture, which is the frontispiece to Hobbes' Leviathan. Right? Great text which establishes an idea of the state for the modern world, debated, right, and considered. And notice the imagining that is part of it. Hobbes right, thought of himself in many ways as a sort of physical scientist looking at politics. That uses a lot of physical metaphors, right, that this, just as the body has springs and a pump in the heart and so forth, well, the state has these kind of physical characteristics, right? But there is a great act of imagining this frontispiece, right? Imagining the king, the absolute sovereign, for which Hobbes is famous, but imagining the embodiment of all these people as the chain mail of the, the armor that the king is wearing. Imagining the countryside, the village down there, the king up above it. Now, I'm not going to go on again about this, but what I want to suggest is that the imagining of nations includes that very abstract imagining that I began with, right? that there are nations, and then it includes various more specific imaginings. The Hobbesian imagining of nations is tied to the notion that there is a commonwealth, a collective self-interest in the prosperity of the nation. And it gives an account of that, and I could go on in the picture, but the book goes on with an account of that, the different contributions of many, including the need for the absolute sovereign. And of course, there's a whole history of political theory 
agreeing and disagreeing, but participating in the common idea that the project of much political theory is to discern how to organize and govern a state. Not the world, a state that will be one among many, and in modernity that will derive its legitimacy from the well-being and usually the economic prosperity of the people. It may or may not be democratic, but there will be a sort of bottom-up or ascending notion of legitimacy. It has to be good for the people. Hobbes's argument for absolute sovereignty is that it's good for the people. It's not that it's good for the sovereign, right? and it's not divine right. The sovereign in his day was very annoyed by his argument because it did not say that the sovereign rules by uncontestable divine right, but says that the sovereign must have this power because of the needs of the people. Right? Now, there's a long history of imagining Britain, right? this green and pleasant land. Let us build a new Jerusalem. There are a range of different stories and contests, struggles over what the imagining of Britain could be. The early 19th century, there was a struggle over industrialization and questions like, was Britain being depopulated? Hard to imagine, given what we know about it now, but it was widely thought that Britain was suffering depopulation, including rural depopulation in the early 19th century. It wasn't, but there was part of a effort to imagine and understand the country and what was happening to it as it changed and what it meant to be a country. A great political scientist who sadly died just a few weeks ago, Benedict Anderson, wrote that nations are imagined communities in a phrase that is commonly misunderstood by those who don't read the book and who think that what he meant was that nations are fantasies that nations are not real communities. In fact, he often wondered if he had the right title, sort of regretted and said, of course, all communities are imagined. What I meant was to say, nations are communities by virtue of being imagined in certain ways. And the puzzle is how we imagine relatively large, impersonal bodies, not knit together by face-to-face -face relationships the way local communities are, and imagine them to be communities. Imagine the whole. So what are nations like? How does that work? Well, there's shared media, for example. Right? And Anderson was interested not just in the content of shared media, but even the ritual characteristic. Everyone opening their newspaper over coffee at the same time in the morning and imagining everyone else doing the same thing. So part of his point about the nation being imagined was that the practices of inhabiting the nation enabled people to imagine everyone else engaged in it. Now, not everyone else read the newspaper, right? We could go and we could critique and say, well, it's been a minority habit, now a declining minority habit. But the point is how much the sense of being in a common nation was supported by certain practices which people could understand others to be doing as well. Censuses are, among other things, a kind of ritual practice of counting everyone. So part of the story of the census is the findings, but part of the story of the census is that everyone gets counted. And the debate about whether we should give up on censuses and say that sample surveys can do better work or that we can give up on having the national census, a very recent debate in Britain about getting rid of the census, has, among other things, a resonance with the idea of 
shouldn't we be counting each and every citizen? Doesn't everyone matter in a way? The census is a way of doing that. But how we order the census also shapes our imagining of the country. Do we organize it in part in class terms and categories and reproduce a class imaginary of what the country is like? Is it geographical? How does that work? Is it a way of recording commonness or separation? Maps I've already talked about. What about museums? Anderson thinks of things like the way in which so many of the great museums of modernity, the British Museum included, were organized as presentations of national experience. So the British Museum represents the empire at one level, the British gaze on the world, but it presents to the world who come to Britain as tourists national experience after national experience, art in that way. But Anderson go beyond just the, that kind of museum to museums of modern art, museums of art in general that construct right, the national identity as basic to the art. Right? So you get art that was produced in the Habsburg Empire, somewhere on the paths that connected the Netherlands to Bavaria to Spain, categorized by the nation states that succeed the Habsburg Empire. So that the presentation of this art in most museums is in terms of these nations. Or at greater extremes, I'm fond of an example in the Swedish Museum of National Museum, which begins historical presentation of modern Sweden with Swedish cavemen. So these were Swedish cavemen. Now, Sweden hadn't been imagined by those cavemen. And whatever the ingredients of Swedishness are, the succession of monarchs and then the transformation into a, a modern social welfare state or the development of Swedish as a language and its differentiation, they weren't present for those cavemen. Right? But the act of imagining those cavemen as being Swedish is a powerful part of nationalism. And it connects on to things like the immigration debates in Britain in which people say quite remarkable things like, I don't understand why these people are coming here and why they didn't just stay like my ancestors here in Britain. We just stayed and built our country. Right? And they say, okay, that's a weird statement. Right? On the one hand, how many Brits went abroad? Lots. world's pretty shaped by that. You know, look at Australia. Look at some places. Right? But second, how many other migrants become part of the British we through history? from a variety of places, right? Um, and the British history, in particular, this island which is conquered by, you know, William the Conqueror from Norman, our great national hero whose major accomplishment is conquering us. Well, wait, how do you, right? And the, this complexity gets somewhat occluded and erased in the way in which we imagine the we. And one of the roles of certain kinds of literature, but also certain kinds of teaching of history is to reinforce and reproduce that version of a we. And there are a variety of other bits of this, the ways in which independence is produced. So this happens to be a famous painting of the signing of the US Declaration of Independence. And it's an iconic account of independence. But it's part of a long chain of actions of imagining. So there's imagining in American independence in the, the Founders have to imagine what kind of country they're creating. They don't simply reproduce Britain. They do that rather more than 
a lot of accounts say. That is, they are pretty much a group of British people, English people really, mainly, who are imagining a better version of English society than that which exists in England. Right? Let's take away the king. Let's take away certain things we don't like and have a good English society. But they're also drawing on classical reference. Right? All the classical architecture that abounds in this period is full of Enlightenment-era thought about what a more rational society would be like. Well, this kind of action is one of a type. It's not just the unique case of America. And it goes on to the present day. When a country wants to establish itself as a sovereign state, for example, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, when a variety of what had been republics within the Soviet Union um, sought membership in the United Nations or sometimes in the EU and began to reorganize themselves, they produced accounts. We have our national traditions. We have folklore. We have a museum. We have a national costume, a style of dress. We have a national folk dance. You have to let us into the United Nations. And that extends beyond this sort of ethnic tradition to certain kinds of institutions. One of the interesting ideas, facts in the world, is that most countries have cabinets and ministries that look pretty much like most others. Whether they're democratic or not, whether they've been around for hundreds of years or not, they tend to have a ministry of defense, right? the equivalent of a home office, a ministry that has a focus on the economy and so forth. There is a huge amount of what has been called institutional isomorphism, in other words, it's as though everybody went to the LSE, took a public administration class, and learned that this is how you organize your national government. Only it's been that way since before the LSE was founded. And it has partly to do with the reproduction of a way of imagining what a government is and gaining recognition from others. We have one of those, a government. Therefore, you should let us into your club of countries that are properly run. And so there's a circulation of this ambassadors, right? All of these sorts of things that are organized. Now, here you may say, this is pretty constrained. This doesn't sound like the freedom of imagination to me. And it's not entirely. A large part of it is the constraint that there's one main way in which we imagine what counts as a legitimate government. And there's a lot of constraint to conform to it, at least in appearance, an organization. There's also a strong idea that each nation is integral, that its people are one. Right? Now, from inside the nation, we know that that's intuitively not true, and yet we immediately reproduce that idea. And we say things like, we English in relation to immigrants. England is a particularly com complicated case of this in certain ways, because not just foreigners like me have to figure out when you say English and when you say British, but it changes with historical period. Right? And so there are movements in and out of the relative emphasis on imagining the national we as English or Irish or Scottish or Welsh or imagining the national we as British. Famously in the context of empire, but also in the context of new labor and cool Britannia, right? there are recurrent moves and efforts to try to shape and reshape national imagining. The nation doesn't just exist as a hard fact like the table. It has to be continually imagined and reimagined and reproduced, media, newspapers, and other settings, and all of this.
Now, there are issues here. Like We could just say, well, there's lots of diversity, and there is. Internal regional diversity, fading but still strong between the different regions of the country. But there's also a variety of diversity. It has to do with immigration and so forth. And yet, there is a whole. And whether that whole is more the enemy of diversity, oppressing our differences, or the useful vehicle of assimilation that enables us all to cooperate with each other, is subject to contest and argument. And part of what unifies us as a nation that we forget often in our imaginings is the argument. It's actually inhabiting the common argument, not having it settled, that is often satisfying the imagination. Well, there are lots and lots of everyday prompts to nationalist imagining. The queen's picture on stamps or on currency, the familiar currency itself. When the euro was introduced on the continent, the number of people who went through a kind of grieving for their national currency and the familiarity of its particular coins and notes was was quite considerable. People who didn't expect to care, who voted in favor of the change, nonetheless lost something familiar in their world. We have lots of these things. The Eurovision Song Contest to promote European unity, of course, promotes national competition. It's pretty trivial, in my opinion at least, but it is a banal form of this national organization. So is the Olympics. So are all sorts of sporting competitions that keep reproducing this notion. Now, I said, and I won't belabor it, history has a role to play in this as a discipline as a public school subject, as a school subject, secondary school, it has the rule that it came into being as a modern field very heavily shaped by the writing of national history. Then it's contested and then on to world history and international history and various other kinds of projects, but a very heavy shaping so that it was English or British history and French history and German history and part of the job of history and part of the reason why there are a lot of history teachers is, in fact, the role of narrating a national story as important, and then discussing, arguing, revising that national story as the necessary imagining of the nation changes. As it becomes important to shift the imagining, because of wars, because of immigration, because of economic development and change, because of urbanization, the history is subject to that. And of course, this is partly a matter of new research, finds new knowledge, It's partly a matter of new perspectives that change things. And it's sort of startling. So a a simple bit of historical fact on this is that in most European countries, in the 18th and through most of the 19th century, there was more variation in fertility rates and how many children a woman had um, within the country than between countries. The big differences were rural versus urban and were various regional subcultures. And this went not just for total number of children. This was true for the age at which women first had children and whether they were married when they got pregnant. All of those things varied more inside every country than between countries. By the end of the 19th century, they varied more between countries than within countries. And the spread of media, 
educational institutions, began to produce common things. Now, here we're not talking about imagining the nation. People didn't do their fertility behavior out of loyalty to France or something like that all the time, but being embodied in a common imaginary production of when is the right time to start having children? How many is the right number? Right? The, these are things that we imagine that shape material reality. Or again, we have this idea of an integral nation. We say, oh, there are these different parts of the world. There's the Middle East, there's China, there's Europe. Well, right, the first mosque in China was built during the prophet's lifetime, started during the prophet's lifetime, completed only a few years after his death, seventh century, by his uncle. Right? So there were Muslims in China right, before there were Muslims in some parts of the Middle East. <laughs> Now, there's a long history and a story I can't really tell of Islam traveling on trade routes from Yemen across coastal Asia to places like Indonesia. And there are reasons why large countries in that region are Muslim. Right? But just take this simple fact. We think that China is full of Chinese people and Muslims are not typical Chinese people. The Chinese government tends to think this way. It thinks about Islam in the northwest of China as a problem about something that's come in from outside. But here in the 7th century, we have Islam coming in in the south, in Guangzhou. So this idea of the nation as integral and the people inside the blue or tan or green territory in the map are pretty much the same is an imaginary idea at odds with some of the facts of what's going on. Now, some of this imagining that I'm talking about is what I would call social imaginary. That is, socially organized ways of imagining. I'm not yet talking about the novelist or the artist with a radically different imaginary. We're here talking about the reproduction of our ability to inhabit certain kinds of social processes because of the continual renewal of an imagination. So a practice like voting, right? how is it that we know what we're doing when we see a room full of people raising or not raising their hands? Right? These are social imaginaries that reproduce citizenship, reproduce practices in large groups and small that are linked to the idea of an individual, right? being able to imagine the citizenry as a collection of individuals such that the vote of each will count. Okay? And this is reproduced. So we do it all the time. We don't just do it once every five years in a parliamentary election. We do it frequently in all sorts of smaller groups. And we imagine a world of choices made by voting, and we make it real and make it meaningful. Okay? The social reproduction of this helps to stabilize the world. So one side of my claim about imagining is that the world gets stabilized. It gets its form, it gets its shape, in part by the fact that we imagine it pretty much the same way, that we are drawn into imagining it the same way. The nations may depend on imagination, but it's not up to you to imagine them completely differently. Right? They are, there are external factors, mainly everybody else in it. And so the imagination here enables and constrains I say it's a little bit like grammar, right? That grammar is a constraint, 
You can't say just anything and have it make sense. And yet, right, you can't say much without it. And so that kind of tension is there with the imagination. Now, literature and art right, participate in this. Lots of literature right, doesn't have as its theme something like a nation. That's a backdrop. That's a secondary condition. It's just reproduced the same way that, that grammar gets reproduced when we speak and when we write. Right? But some of it does. Does offer different ideas of what's possible. Does enrich the very idea of what could be. And so there is a pushing at the boundaries that can be important in literature and art, their relation to imagination. There, one of the features that connects to nations, about to move off this example, but while I'm still on the example of nations, is the way in which a rise of novels and reading habits that embodied intertwined narratives, right? Read a great 19th century novel in which there are many different stories being knit together in one larger story, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, whatever. Sorry, right? A novel in which you have the story of half a dozen different families, different scenes, but they interconnect at various points. It knits together. It helps us with imagining a possibility of a larger interconnected social life in various ways. And as it gets supplanted by novels that may thematize fragmentation and pastiche and so forth in the postmodernist era, we have people dealing with different kinds of social realities. Instead of the realities of urbanization and social mobility and giving them a coherent developmental story, right, we have a reality of disconnected bits of reality, hard to put together in various ways. So imagination right, reflects what's out in the world, but it also opens up senses of what may be possible, and it develops, in a sense, guides for us as we seek to understand what's going on, as we each seek to imagine and to improvise our understanding of the world, we have as resources the work of others. We also have templates for this. So there's a gradation from reproducing that, right? from trying to carry out a romance in the model of a Harlequin romance, or carry out a romance in the model of the kinds of TV situation comedies. And we all do this. Right? We all think that in a matter as personal as love, we will be completely individual and our own people. And then we find ourselves repeating phrases that sound like they were said by some stereotyped character in a Hollywood or a Bollywood drama. Right? So there's an element of the template, but then there's an element of the tension with the imagining, the things that are possible in the artistic portrayal that don't seem familiar in everyday life, that cause you to puzzle. Is that possible too? Could it be that way? And even right, the very idea that this is somehow organized in a difference between that more repetitive popular culture, the Harlequin romances and the TV dramas, and great art, is itself an act of imagining, of imagining cultural creativity organized in those kinds of semi-class terms. Now, some of this can be, right, like science fiction, imagining the future. And it could be Jules Verne, it could be any of a variety of writers who have imagined technologies that later come into being. 
or sometimes technologies that don't come into being and we keep waiting for them. Right? Dick Tracy, right, this particular bit of imagining from Chester Gould, had these things right, in the 1930s. Right? Now, most people didn't actually have regular ordinary landline phones in Britain until the 1970s. So this is way ahead of the spread of the technology, but it's something that was clearly possible that gets incorporated into comic books in this particular case. Right? So there can be envisioning and playing with possible futures, and it matters because a lot of how we become ready for new technologies and new devices is that they've been explored in imagination first. And we have some ideas about them. We want them. But this extends from gadgets to something like social movements, to trying to change the world very directly, which depends first on believing that the world could be different, another world is possible, whether or not, whatever your view of capitalism and it was working or not, a core feature <coughs> of every social movement is the belief that things don't have to be as they are. It is a common feature, not ubiquitous, but common, of those in power to say, like Margaret Thatcher, there is no alternative. The tyranny of Tina is one of the most powerful blocks against social struggle and social change. If there's no alternative, then you might as well adapt. Right? The belief that there's an alternative is what opens up a kind of cognitive liberation to think, oh, you mean we could have peace instead of war? We could have equality instead of inequality? We could have sharing instead of competition? Really? Right? So the notion, right, or in the case of what Margaret Thatcher originally applied the Tina to, that globalization is not simply an inexorable economic pressure to which we must adapt, including by more or less neoliberal reforms or something, but <coughs> an arena of struggle. And globalization could be organized different ways. Right? Then creates the possibility of the World Social Forum or other kinds of projects of putting into place that different sort of globalization. In its very early years, the movements that center on the World Social Forum were often called um, anti-global. And the participants would bridle at this and say, we're not against globalization. We're against corporate-dominated neoliberal globalization. We believe that globalization could be organized in different ways. Okay? So this cognitive liberation is important, and it depends on imagination, imagining the world differently. Now, often that doesn't come from science fiction or from Marxist manifestos. It comes from remembered histories, images of a golden age. How much of imagining that the world could be different now is not having a coherent vision of the ideal future, but having a memory, possibly an imagined, perhaps inaccurate memory of an earlier period when we think things were better. You know, it used to be that there weren't so many zero hours or, or contingent labor contracts and people had secure employment. It used to be that people really respected the title professor. It used to be right, that divorce wasn't so prominent. Now, anything that may or may not be true for any of the particular historical used-to-be's, but golden age stories are terrific sources of an imagination of an alternative 
which opens up the possibility that things could be different, even if you can't go back and recreate the golden age. Now let me, before closing, get to a different kind of example. Talked a lot about nations, sort of politics. What is a corporation, a business, Unilever? Well, it's a fiction. It is, among other things, a fictive individual. And legally, legal opinions describe corporations as fictive individuals. They are artificial individuals. They are created entities that are able to do things that people can do, like own property, sign contracts, sell that property. Right? The corporation has a complicated historical story. How much is it a concession from the state? You can have a corporation because the crown says you can. And in many national traditions, some version of concession from above is the primary mode of incorporating a business. Right? In others, it's more contract. Different people create the corporation out of contract. But the key act of imagination is believing that the corporation exists. Reproducing in constant practice. Right? When you buy a house from a developer that is a corporation, that they actually can sign a contract and you can buy a house from that corporation. When you rent, when you go to the grocery store, in all sorts of dealings, right, we deal with corporations, this highly asymmetric reality. We as flesh and blood people deal with these somewhat abstract things. But these abstract things, which I say are creatures of imagination, are very materially real as you'll find out if you do not pay your bills to that developer that sold you the house. Okay? So it's not an opposition between the real and the imaginary, but it does depend on imaginary. The corporation is not its managers. It's not its employees. It's not its owners. Each of these have a role in it as a constituency, but they're not the whole. A key legal development was limited liability to try to separate them. But part of the interesting history of the corporation is that there is a widespread popular acceptance of the existence of these corporations and their role. The US in the early 19th century, Justice Marshall famously wrote about a corporation that had, the corporation, he said, is so important and yet it has no soul to damn, no body to kick. Right? Frustrated, this very imaginary entity because IBM or Unilever aren't their corporate headquarters. Right? They aren't tangible in quite that way, and yet they're extremely powerful. Now, Britain long banned joint stock companies, essentially the modern model of corporation. Most of the Industrial Revolution, the great economic activity of the Industrial Revolution, was conducted without the corporate form of organizing businesses, with very, very large partnerships. So in the metal trades or in the textile trades, there would be partnerships involving 50, 60, 70 partners pooling their capital and creating a business because it was impossible legally to form a corporation most of the time, and there are very certain kinds of exceptions. Right? Um, and this is because in the early 18th century, there was a catastrophic bubble. We've lived through bubbles more recently. This is a super bubble right, the South Sea Company, which burned a lot of aristocrats, members of the royal family, and other elite investors, who joined in buying shares, as a share in the stock of the South Sea Company, this imaginary phenomenon, right? Here's stock being traded, right? Shoots up, right? And almost as fast, shoots down to a lower level and bankrupts a variety of people. 
And the response is, well, we can't let people form these imaginary things, joint stock companies. We will have to have real flesh and blood principles behind every business. Matters on through Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, in which Adam Smith right, is against, as he's commonly quoted by business commentators, combinations of labor, but is equally against combinations of capital. For his theory to work, he says there have to be flesh and blood individuals in all roles, because the market is a learning process in which people are being taught and educated, and if you interimpose combinations, that won't work. Right? Now, the corporation, though, right, does eventually lean back, much earlier in the U.S. and in some other settings, with slight variations in natural law, and becomes a huge part of our contemporary landscape, but dependent on our believing in it, on our imagining it to be real. And imaginations can get caught up with bigger social change. If I say we could have a world without business corporations and capitalism, you would call me utopian, right? Harkening back to the 16th century, harkening forward to the rest of the literary festival, which is focused on utopia, on this idea of a world or a place in the world, in this case an island, right? maybe a little bit like Britain, right? which is organized in a radically different way. It's Nowhere, or in Erwan, for the other great utopian classic of the era, but it's an opportunity to imagine and think about a society that would be different, be better, would be just in some other ways. It's worth putting on the table that for every utopia there's a dystopia, that the act of imagination is not just what we would love. Wouldn't it be great if we had utopia? It's what we fear, what we think would be terrible. Wouldn't it be awful if we had 1984, if we had the Orwell dystopia. We have other dystopias now. We have a great trade in dystopian visions, and imagining the bad is just as powerful a part of our lives. Things like revolutions are driven partly by utopias and partly by dystopias. And there is, again, social imagining at work on several levels. The idea of a revolution in people's mind is often a very short-term sudden change. Right? Not three or four years of civil war, which is what a lot of revolutions really look like. Right? It's often a matter of individualistic figures making their declarations, not tens of thousands or millions of people in a complex relationship. The very word has changed its meaning from its more literal meaning of going full circle, revolving, right? to radically innovating in some way. And we have representations that capture our imagination. The Delacroix exhibit, which is just open at the National Gallery, deserves attention. Here you have liberty leading the people into battle. The idea of the people, look, notice how few of the people are visible. But the people becomes an imagined category in the revolution. This was influential in the French Revolution in 1789. Delacroix was painted in 1848. But in 1789, right, you get stories like the fall of the Bastille. Historians would tell you now, a relatively unimportant event in terms of its military significance. Right? Some guns were seized. The Bastille wasn't that important. But an event of mythical importance in French imagination in which it meant that the people had risen up and thrown off the yoke of oppression. Well, that's actually a British expression to be used about Normans, but in any case, <laughs> right? 
that the people had done something quite remarkable in seizing the Bastille, right? or again in the National Assembly. Right? These things become part of our broader imagination, the social imagination, for thinking about society and change. The National Assembly bequeaths to us the idea of left and right. Who sat on the left and who sat on the right and how their positions right, differed, right, which influences our, our modern idea that there is a natural continuum, that you can arrange everything from left to right. And then, of course, the National Assembly had a lot to say about property rights, and you should note the Getty assertion of property rights um, in this art, right? ironically, since it's revolutionary art. Right? And this has echoes. Right? So the Red Terror, a retrospective description of the period that includes Robespierre's execution in the French Revolution, becomes an idea about revolution such that in Ethiopia, in the revolution that involved the Durgan and Mengistu, Halimari and Mengistu coming to power, the government, the revolutionary government, declared the Red Terror as a necessary phase in the revolution. It's time for us to have the Red Terror now, right? Believing in a narrative of revolution and imagining of what revolution was like that was hugely violent and killed many more people than the French original. Right? Empire gets imagined in a whole host of ways and I am drawing to a close in this, but one little bit about this. This is the, the Treaty of Nanking, the signing um, on a frigate off the coast of China. And whether or not all these people really were arranged in ceremonial ways like this for it, there's an interesting feature to it as far as the imaginative empire. There are no Indians in this picture. Yet, right, every one of the British ships that was there was manned mainly by Indians. Right? A significant percentage of the British merchants in Hong Kong were in fact Indians. The trade in the Opium War was at least a three-way trade, significantly involving India all along. So we get a remembered history of the Opium War, a remembered history of this in which there are the British and the Chinese, and in fact both the British and the Chinese remember the history this way, right? just us and them erasing the very large participation of Indians, another part of the British Empire, and a complicating picture to this. Now, how we imagine the history, then, has implications for how we imagine the future. And in closing, let me just say, imagination right, is in part a condition of freedom. If we can't imagine things being other than they are, if we are subject to what I call the tyranny of Tina, then we don't have the capacity to choose, even to choose to keep things the same if we want to. I'll stop there. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Um, I really enjoyed that. I'd quite like to spend the next half hour just asking you questions about it, but I don't think I'm allowed to do that. Um, so I have to, I mean, I'm going to come Use out your to... imagination. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just make some suggestions about how we conduct the question part of this, uh, this session. Um, please wait for the microphones. There's people on either side of the room with microphones. Um, when you're asking a question, um, please start by just telling us who you are. If you have an affiliation that's relevant to your question, please state it. Um,
If you're more inclined to make a comment rather than ask a question, um, just finish your comment by saying, do you agree? Um, um, and that's just a pro tip that I'm giving you for free. Um, but in exchange for that, can I ask that questions and comments are quite brief, and that way we'll be able to, to fit in quite a lot of them. Um, so let's get started. Can I, can I see some hands? Um, okay, let's start over here. Uh, person in the second row from the back, just on the end. Hi. Uh, my name is Gabriela. I am from LSE. I'm studying a Master of Law in Anthropology. And, well, I, I'm really thankful. I think it's a wonderful uh, topic about talking about imagination. And my question is, there's two questions. One, I, I wanted to ask if you could talk about, uh, you talk about self or wish fulfillment, as self-fulfillment as a way of wish. Yeah, wishing a self-fulfillment way is kind of a way of limiting our capacity of, of imagining things. And also because I was wondering what are the if there are limits of imagination, then when I saw the picture and most of people who are actually imagining and establishing and reproducing are people who have power and also have access to, um, to material things or to put into action material things. So my question is also about that. What about the limitations and who can agree on that? Because in a corporation and a state, I think the main difference is that when a corporation is being it's being yeah held or is being organized there's a contract and people are aware of the corporation whether in a state or in a political scenario we are kind of unaware of that contract we just don't even question it we reproduce it but we're not even part of the of of saying how we want or that's how i feel the states are being you know or yeah being run off. So, yeah, two, this is my two questions. Thank okay. you. Okay, thank you. I'm going to collect another couple as well. Um, so, person right bang in the middle here. Um, yes, you. Uh, thank you for your brilliant and probably quite revolutionary talk. Uh, Oxbridge owns a near anopoly over our imagination via the media, law, parliament, banks, and institutions. Do you think having one institution of this nature and having such power is dangerous to the collective imagination for the people in that country? Thank you very much. Okay, and now I'm going to take one from over here. Um, yes, um, so person just here, third in from this side. Yes. Uh, it was you, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm uh, Nicholas, a PhD student at the Hertie School of Governance. Um, Utopias, I think, are, are usually the project of singular imagination or, of, 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 or you know, of, of a small group. And these um, utopians, I think, too often consider the word, the, the, too often consider, I would argue, people as organic material to be shaped and not as willful agents who do the shaping. So the people's role is, is rather to confirm to some to some um, forced plans. I don't know if you agree, but um, is this the reason why large-scale utopias made manifest are so horrific and short-lived, horrific because of that? And um, is there a chance of a more collective, more social, bottom-up utopia? And if so, how could that be developed? Okay. 
Thank you very much. Um, three questions there, which actually quite well connected in a way. So the first question was, I guess, about sort of the, the who can imagine and whether it's there's it's kind of there's something there's a link between having power and being able to imagine. Um, I guess the second question was on a similar theme, which was asking about sort of the the whole the 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 institutions of Oxford and Cambridge and people who have been there or who are there now, what hold that has on, on the British imagination, um, or perhaps even more widely. Um, and then the third question about, I guess in some way, the subjects of imagination um, and whether the people who are subject to being imagined by others, we need to think about that in a different way. Okay. Um, I'll try to stick to your injunction to be brief. Um, I thought even more than two questions, Aurelia, at least three. The uh, wish fulfillment point to me is the extent to which most of us, most of the time, wish for things that are just improved versions of what we have now. And um, only occasionally, and often under the influence of art or other creative um, work, we may think, oh, things could be really different. So even in the university, you know, most people want their department to have a little bit more resources, their pension to not be declining. I mean, the, if you stick to that, uh, there's a tendency for us to want a better version of what is now. Um, and, and that was the point I was, I was trying to make. As distinct from those somewhat rarer occasions when people really develop ideas about a more radical uh, difference. I do think it's true that... Um, Part of my talk was skewed, but that a lot of this has to do with those in power, partly because what I wanted to get across was the extent to which how we imagine the world is a support for the existing structures of power. Um, and that's a main point that I wanted to make. But it's certainly true that there are, um, and this goes to Nicholas's question as well, that there can be more bottom-up imaginings. I'll come back to it there. Um, I don't agree with you, though, about state versus corporation. Um, I, I think that each has the same fault that you say the state has, that people tend to forget that there was an act of creation of some kind, um, and they just see that which is there. Um, and so that's certainly true of states, and it's more true of states that are longer standing. And people are reminded that it's not completely true sometimes, but in certain circumstances. But, the, um, but there's a tendency to just think, right, I'm Colombian, and there's the Colombian state, and the state's different from FARC, and we have the, you know, and you have a, it's sort of taken for granted. And the same is true with corporations, that people don't really think of the big enduring corporations being made. Corporations actually go out of existence a lot. Um, there's a demography to them, but they tend to be taken for granted while they exist by people who deal with them um, in their practical dealings. And part of the asymmetry of corporations to individuals is that they can live longer than individuals. One of the reasons not to get involved in a lawsuit with a corporation is that the corporation has available the tactic of drawing out the lawsuit until you're dead. Um, I, I studied um, at one point a research project on people who had been victims of asbestos-related diseases, including asbestosis and mesothelioma and so forth. And one of the tactics of the corporations, including Johns Manville, the main corporation involved, was literally to contest the suits on trivialities until the claimants died. Um, and, uh, and so that asymmetry that p 
people, you and me, flesh and blood people, have to go through life courses. Also affects things like the capacity to, to accumulate capital. There are some very rich individuals in the world, but the capacity for corporations to accumulate capital is radically greater because they don't die and it doesn't get divided up and given to their kids who squander it in gambling or something like that. The, um, finally, states are corporations, not a theme that I brought up tonight, but, but in fact the state is a kind of corporation. And so if we're really going at exploring all of this, the capacity to create these super actors extends to states as well as to business entities. Um, Oxbridge. Well, yeah, of course, that's the crucial role of the LSE. Um, no, the, um, that is entirely too glib because you could also say that the Russell Group or the, the model of the university, right? Why can't we have other kinds of models of how to produce and share um, knowledge and carry out intellectual debate that are not the conventional university model. Uh, the LSE over its history has become more of a conventional university from when it was founded. There is a pattern, what I called institutional isomorphism and said was true of cabinets, is true of things like universities. You get a field of them and they become more like each other and everyone says, oh, you have a department of media and communication? We better have a department of media and communication or whatever the particular example is. And um, so the narrower the um, uh, field of plurality of different visions, in general, I think, the less creative. Um, the specific issue of Oxbridge, though, also raises the issue of power and class, because it's not just the huge weight of those particular institutions, it's the extent to which they are tied up with um, an overall structure of inequality in the society. Um, that makes it powerful. Um, the, uh, so I'm sort of pro-plurality in this. At the same time, a last comment is Oxford and Cambridge, like many big institutions, aren't all one thing um, and are internally plural and there are contestations and change. And so there can be significant change. You know, Oxford, around the time the LSE was founded, vowed it would never take up that newfangled subject economics. It was just not going to catch on. Um, but it actually has one of the better economics departments in the country now. There is change even within these um, very strong institutions. Uh, to Nicholas's point, um, absolutely all the first part of what you said. Um, there's a social engineering side to many utopian visions in which um, the, uh, uh, the people are simply the objects of that engineering or that reorganization that has influenced many um, large-scale efforts to instantiate utopia. But I would suggest um, not all. Um, after all, democracy um, was also a utopian vision before it existed. Um, and it was a utopian vision which gave rather more weight to the diversity of the views of different people and the diversity of the lives of different people. Part of the point of having democracy is that people aren't all the same. If they're all the same, so one of the reasons why the arguments against immigration, I think, don't hold as much weight as some people think. If everybody were the same as each other, there would be very little value to having democracy. Um, it's because you need to have some way of resolving differences among people that it becomes um, especially value, valuable. Um, and it's worth noting that there are the, it's not just state-centered utopias. The, in many ways, 
Um, what we saw in what's so-called neoliberalism, don't love the name, but the reality since the 1970s, the market was a kind of utopia um, of market vision. Um, well, if we can only solve all problems by using market um, approaches and reduce the extent to which there is political or other interference with the markets, then life will be good. Um, so there, there are these visions um, too. But I actually think bottom-up utopian projects are rare. Um, that doesn't mean that bottom-up movements aren't dependent on, as I suggested, imagination, imagination of the real, but I think they are very seldom radical utopia. I think there are cases and exceptions, um, but they are much more often closer to the wish fulfillment, as I called it. That is, the bottom-up movements seek relatively what seem to the members as relatively modest, reasonable changes, they may, in fact, be very hard for the existing society to deliver. So if you say, look, all we want is secure employment, full employment, at good wages for all the people, that just sounds like a reasonable extension of life. That's not a radical utopian vision. But it would be really, really hard for our contemporary financial capitalist system to deliver that and if there were a mass movement demanding that, it would be destabilizing. But it wouldn't result in a simple utopia. So is the implication of that that utopian thinking is inherently elitist? That it's only elites that can imagine utopias? I wouldn't go so far as only, but disproportionately. Okay. I would say most other people have real problems to solve in their lives. Than <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so question right here at the front. Uh, Richard Bronk, LSE, thank you very much for a fascinating talk. I wanted to ask you about your last point about um, imagination as a locus of freedom and, and a flip side of that. Um, just a quick aside, it seems to me that imagination is really a family resemblance term, and most of what you talked about was organizing imaginaries, imaginaries or fictions as functioning as stabilizing or, yes. or reformulate, reformulating uh, of unities. But there's another aspect of imagination which you began to touch on at the end, the sort of new connections um, be between existing ideas, the basis of creativity, cognitive mutation, if you like. Um, George Shackle, who wrote about this, had a lovely phrase, imagination injects ex nihilo an unforknowable arrangement of elements. And that brought up the question I wanted to ask you, which is, isn't the, the flip side of imagination being the locus of freedom that it's also a cause of great uncertainty and that we need to embrace that uncertainty and not search for more stability and rational order than, than we can have um, if, we, if we want to have a creative um, country? Thank you question right in the middle here, a person in the blue shirt. Quite a journey in imagination. Um, imagination essentially must be unhinged with the reality. Yet it has to be hinged with the reality as well. Because we can see that people at different times can imagine different things. I mean, historically, um, people living in different places also have uh, different kind of imagination. So what I, my question is, in what way imagination is hinged to reality? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and then a question right at the back over here. Thank you. My name is Eva. I wanted to ask about um, <coughs> the role that early education has with getting societies to use their imagination more. So kids have amazing imagination. And it, there's even a famous study that shows that there was a group of kids at the age of six and 
8% of them scored as highly creative, and that dropped to 30% at the age of 10, and just to 2% at the age of 25. So it kind of looks like we, imagination is being trained out of us as we progress through education. Um, I wanted to know what your opinion is, what you think uh, we could do with early education to, to, to become more creative and become more imaginative as a society. Thanks. Okay, so does education gradually remove our imagination? Um, I, I, that's a very provocative question. Um, a question around kind of links between what can we imagine at different times, so the connection between imagination and temporality. Um, and then a question with sort of um, echoes around imagination as uncertainty. Um, okay, I'm what are your thoughts? in the order of the questions, they, mm. so Richard, who has written really well on the way in which um, romantic uh, uh, understandings of a very open, very uncertain possibility of imagination um, influence law, economy, various fields, um, I think asks a, a great question. So I wanted, I may have overcorrected, but I wanted to say imagination <coughs> doesn't only mean um, uncertainty and doesn't only mean the radically new. And so in two senses, I want to say that we need to recognize how much we imagination constructs all the world around us, including stability, both state and nation, but also <coughs> the fact that the utopian visions are so often the products of those of, of people in very different positions, not the, the mass movements, if you will, the, um, within those shared. But I do think there is an issue around uncertainty, so nonetheless. And the reason why there is um, so much channeling and stabilization of imagining is to deal with the potential for um, unbridled imagination to create radical uncertainty. And so if we want to um, have creativity, we have to embrace imagination and embrace uncertainty. We might or might not have a strongly romantic theory, um, that is sort of in the early 19th century sense of romantic theory, of, um, the way in which that works. You can have very different accounts of it, not centered on the individual, but, um, but it would have to open up to uncertainty because there would have to be unknowns about what was being created and so forth. So, um, yeah, yes, this is a short answer. The, um, let me tie that to Ava's question, because I think it's a very similar question on early childhood education. Um, <clears throat> the um, creativity is, in part, trained, disciplined out of us, and that's partly a bad thing. Um, so I would say creativity, if there were nothing but creativity, there would be an extremely chaotic set of relations. So where the, the balance is between stabilizing some aspects of our life, imagine in the consistent ways, and creativity and openness to the new um, is a big question. I think we go pretty far towards um, trying to um, minimize the potential disruptions, and therefore we minimize the creativity too, <clears throat> and, and we try to impose ideas of the right way to do things. Um, there are better ways to do things, though. So I would not go to the extreme of saying, right, all children will creatively discover um, algebra and calculus on their own, and um, so should just be left to invent them. Um, I think there is a, a genuine role for education in training and shaping 
um, uh, kids' intellects, um, including their ability to be creative. And so successful creativity often involves um, what our other questioner was calling hinging both to, uh, hinging to reality and unhinging. That is the, the creativity, the, I don't know, the Edisons or the whoever are doing the productive, very different things, um, are not completely unhinged from reality. They are imagining that things could be different. You could have incandescent light bulbs. Well, incandescent light bulbs actually depend on a lot of reality um, in the way in which they are made. They are simply somewhat new. And then they have huge unintended consequences, to bring it back to um, Richard's point. Right? So most of the unintended consequences, most of the effects of the light bulb aren't visible to Edison. Right? He solves one set of problems by producing light bulbs to replace candles, but doesn't imagine what will happen to all of the issues from energy use to staying up late at night to kids' development when kids live under the artificial light and stay up too late at night. I mean, there are just a million ways in which light bulbs have impacts that aren't part of the original vision. So the unknown is a huge factor um, in all of this. I can't resist the, coming in with yeah. a, there's a story about Alexander Graham Bell after having imagined the telephone and invented the telephone being asked about the potential of it and he thought he was being very bullish. He said it's going to be a major success. Every city will have one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So the, the, um, the issue of if we're getting a full grip on all of it we would pay a lot of attention to unintended consequences and how to deal with them um, because they can go so wildly all over the place. And this, um, I'll just take the, close off the question, though, with the, the, I'm depressed by the reduction in creativity, but I also think it, as I said, it's not all bad, that some of it is learning that you can do things like grammar, um, uh, that you can use um, the constraints and disciplines in one area to enable you to be successfully creative in others. You can write fabulous new poetry, but it's actually helpful to learn grammar and syntax first. The, um, the issue about reality, though, I, uh, I'll close on. I, without using the expression hinged, it is this complicated relationship that I was trying to pull out. I don't think that imagination um, is well understood by thinking of it as completely disconnected by, to reality and completely unconstrained from reality. So I think it's both sides of this, that imagination... Um, is um, in a relationship with what exists. And it can be in a variable relationship with what exists, but it's very seldom completely disconnected. Even wildly speculative fiction has relationships to the existing world around us, um, and it chooses to alter the terms of some of those relationships. So let us imagine this variable or that variable are different. Right? Human nature will remain the same, but physics will be different in my imagined fiction or vice versa. And so there are, there are always these relations in working with it. And the reality is always changing. It doesn't stay anywhere near as fixed as we think it does um, because of our experience. Uh, so the, the relationship is complicated. Person over here. My name is Isabella, and I also work here at the LSE. My question is related to the last two, but also ties into the role of education and imagination. Because I think 
there's a trade-off between teaching what is and what could be. So if you place a focus on teaching facts and concepts, like most institutions do, like the LSE as well, then you limit to some extent what you can say or giving space to what could be. But at the same time, like you so rightly say, you also have to look backwards and have to know what what is so that you can imagine the future. So I wonder how you think you can sort of balance the two. Um, and then right behind you. Hello, my name is Laura. I'm doing the Media and Communication Masters. And I want to ask you something. Like, I dream one day, like, imagine being here, and then I change my world because I'm here now. But the point is, uh, how can you face those who are pessimistic and sometimes are afraid of imagine? How can, for example, when you talk to some people living under poor conditions, how can you change their mind to imagine and create a new reality for them in a country like with poor, poor situation or, or difficult times? Yeah, you've been waiting for a while, I think, yeah. Um, uh, my, my question is about also more or less um, the uneven access to imagination from different contexts and, and people. I'm talking about now uh, the example of uh, people facing hardship uh, that, that might involve also an active imagination not only uh, towards the future but also mm, the way they, they imagine to be in present and into the past. I mean, they, they construct a whole narrative and there's a continuous um, way of seeing themselves in this, in this narrative so that uh, when they face uh, hardship, sometimes they stop uh, having access to this possible future. And you can, you can see that um, in many life stories differently uh, shaped or even... Une um, unable to narrate a, f a possible future, they, they just are silent. So you're being pressed on the connection between teaching and imagination, um, and a couple of questions, I guess, about the social conditions of imagination. Yeah. So I'll try. I wish I understood all of these things completely, but I don't. Um, I think the first question about teaching what is and what could be is, is absolutely a key question all teachers should be asking themselves whether they are opening up some access to what could be alongside what is. But it seems to me that it shouldn't be thought about as though we, in teaching what is, it's just facts and what could be isn't. Because the biggest access to the idea that things could be otherwise is to learn history or to learn about other cultures and societies. Um, it's other examples that actually exist, that are real, that open up to you the recognition that what is in your setting is not the only way things could be. Um, so don't let the issue become one of, oh, teaching facts, that stultifies us and ties us to what is versus uh, teaching imagination opens it up. Because the, the imagination is stimulated when you discover Oh, you know, oh, really? They do it that way in this other place? And, and you learn. So it's difference, but difference within reality that, that opens up often. So history and other cultures. Um, <clears throat> the, and part of what's stultifying the message about things can't change isn't 
factual. As I said it just a moment ago, things change all the time. It's not reality that things can't change. But our, we have systems of knowledge and systems of ways of presenting things that may maximize the idea of necessity and inevitability. But I don't think that's merely factual. Um, Laura, uh, yes, the fear of imagining is huge and unequally distributed. And so in a society that we may say this society has a lot of it or this time period, we have, we have a lot of fear right now in our society, including fear of imagining. There are other periods. You might ask why some periods of high cultural creativity and high imagining, you know, the age of Aquarius in the 60s or something, well, what enabled people to feel secure enough to open up, and this goes back to Richard's question, to open up to that much uncertainty, to say, hey, let's go ahead and try it. If it doesn't work out, we'll move on, right? And at other times, we'll say, we can't try anything because it's too dangerous. And, and I don't have a complete answer to that. But some of it, and this relates to Eunice's question, does have to do with unequal access. So there are peasants, for example, you know, very poor farmers close to subsistence, um, may have intellectual abilities to imagine, but they have conditions of existence that make um, it very risky to, very to try things that are different a lot. And, um, and there are, these are sometimes then coupled to cultural learnings about how risky it is to try things that are different. And so the, um, this is one of the reasons why sometimes the people who are relatively oppressed in existing systems are not in a position to imagine radical difference. They're in a position to resent being oppressed, but not in a position always to imagine um, a radical change in that. And what might what we might we do about it? We might think of you know alternative pedagogies. Think of of Friere, Paulo Friere's um, pedagogy, and how much it turns on trying to give people unmediated chances to. Um, address actual things in existence um, so that it's not trying to nurture imagination by saying here are coloring books with no lines go do it it's trying to get people to connect to reality in a way that is not constrained by all the other abstract systems that are telling them how they should connect to reality and I think there's, there's a clue there in some of it um, and uh, a last point for you know, this the embeddedness, the narratives of the poor, the, the embeddedness um, in all of this, much of the time um, is constraining, but it may be enabling you to live and to stay alive. And if your basic problem is staying alive and keeping your family alive, maybe doing that. But the, it is also possible for people to um, imagine um, alternatives. And so just a, an evocation of that. One of the you know, religion can be a part of um, relatively oppressive narratives for lots of poor people, lots of circumstances, and it can also be a part of much more liberating narratives. Oh, the Exodus story. The Exodus, the things that we could make a movement of this kind. And, and so I think that there are these possibilities. They depend on um, some people creatively responding to the available cultural resources but, um, but religion um, is an example of something go either way on this and can become um, a, precisely because it is powerfully connected to how people deal with their everyday problems. They deal with their suffering. 
it becomes powerful when it becomes linked to um, a way of transcending or changing that suffering. Okay, I think we've got just about enough time to take a very final round of questions. Um, all the questions so far have been pretty polite and discursive, so I think if you've been waiting to ask a more critical question, yeah. this is probably the moment in which to do it. Um, um, person right here in the orange T-shirt. Hi there. <clears throat> Sorry, my name's George. I uh, studied economics at LSE. Um, I was wondering about the concept, or not even the concept, the reality, which is virtual reality and whether you'd thought about the potential future for it. So I already have my own concepts about whether I think it's going to be a positive or negative thing. Um, so I don't want to put those ideas in your head already. So okay. I was wondering okay. what you thought just as yourself. And, um, yeah, just... Okay. Yeah, yeah that's that. a very interesting question about... It. Yeah. Um, there's a question right here at the front. Thank you. Um, it's still a, a, a very polite question. Running <laughs> <laughs> uh, out of time. But, um, <laughs> no, I, I think one of the things that I'm struck by in terms of your talk and also um, the questions that have followed up from it is that we're talking very much about imagining um, a different reality outside of ourselves. It's very much about changing the world outside. It's about changing the circumstances in which we live. As a political scientist, I completely uh, relate to that. But I, I'm struck by the fact that we haven't really talked about, you know, changing how how we think of ourselves, you know, fun fundamental changes about our own perceptions that perhaps we're not who we thought we were as individuals or we don't quite want uh, anymore uh, what we thought we wanted. And in a sense, I suppose for me, obviously the two are not disconnected, but there is a sense in which partly being able to imagine the world differently is about being able to imagine yourself differently. And here, the experience of imagination can be an, uh, quite an emotional uh, experience of the imagination. And it's where, where fiction uh, can can actually trigger uh, reactions that allow you to see yourself differently and then therefore the world differently. So just wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Okay, I'm going to behave very badly and take the last question, uh, which is when you were um, showing the, the maps um, and, and you were kind of making the observation that when you look from space, you don't actually see any of these boundaries. I guess that's changing to some extent because there's a number of places in the world where we're building fences across across national borders. And I just wonder whether that's a sort of what's happened there is reality has, has, has sort of pushed across the imagined border and we have to reinforce the imagined border with a real one. Um, and I wonder whether kind of, does that make the border stronger or does it make it weaker? Because I think suddenly you have something you can break, um, yeah. whereas before you had something that was different. Um, okay, the, let me respond to that. Um, quickly and say, well, it's the Great Wall of China, which is visible from space. So my, yep. my rhetorical device of saying you don't see borders from space is flawed, right. though the Great Wall of China is actually not on the border of China. But um, yeah. at any rate, yeah. it's on the border of a, uh, in, just inside the once borders of China against, you know, different yeah. things. And then there's islands, right? So you, and, yeah. um, and so there are certainly geographical demarcations that you see from space. But I, it was, this is really less of a claim about what you can see from space than about the idea that most of national borders are not visible except as artificially constructed um, in accord with imagination and that we keep seeing things that keep reminding us to imagine the world that way. 
That is, um, you, you see maps all the time, and the maps may be for some completely different purpose. Let's compare a gross national product, or it's not a map, it's a list, but the list is organized in terms of countries. And so if you think about international inequality, and you say, I want to know how much, you know, and you look at it, the data you get will be 99% of the time organized in terms of nation states. And so it will mask the question of the internal inequality within the nation states and focus on the differences among the nation states. And the nation, you know, so in an, you get reproduction of think this way um, in all kinds of contexts, including when people are trying usefully to open up, they, that happens. Um, so the World Bank is not trying to convince you to be nationalist when it publishes its statistics in the form of nations that but it does happen. Mm. Um, the, um, and borders are very real. I don't, um, so fences are being constructed and have been constructed before and can be you know, pernicious. I generally think all of the proposals to construct fences um, are, are pernicious at the moment. Donald Trump's, the Israeli wall. I mean, I, you know, I'm not in favor of any of these. But I also don't think that's all new. Um, various kinds of material obstructions at borders have an old history um, in that, but not a ubiquitous old history because it really has to do with borders rather than frontiers. So through most of human history, powerful political units didn't have sharp borders. They had frontiers, and the longer it took to march your army from the capital to the edge, the weaker your authority was at the frontier, right? But it was a fuzzy frontier. It's the exception until the modern era to have sharp borders. And the ability to have sharp borders depends on imagining. It depends on things like a bird's eye view. So it depends on changes that include even technological changes, changes in map making, um, that enabled conceptualization from a bird's eye view looking down is saying there's a border here, as opposed to the way pre-modern maps were usually drawn, which was directions on how to get from here to there on the ground. And, um, and so you had sort of fuzzy frontiers and, board, and not sharp borders. So there, that's a change in how we imagine the world and how we make it how it is. Um, the, uh, it even has a small relationship to the question of reimagining ourselves, because part of our imagining of ourselves um, <clears throat> in this modern ten- of world tends to be our location in social space. And, um, and so we are, you know, our sense of that. And we have a sense of, of national identity almost inscribed into our bodies and a, a relationship to this. So there's a, a political imaginary of the self. But then I think you're asking more about things like the way in which a sense of <clears throat> who you are as a person can change and can change because you get involved in a social movement. So a large part of so-called consciousness raising in early second wave feminism is an, is an engagement in personal transformation with potential political social consequences. And, um, and it is very emotional, it's very wrenching, and <clears throat> the idea that the personal is the political, a catchphrase of that, sums up one side of it, but the personal is also the personal. It's also who you are, and it's, it's a deep thing. Now, it's not just early um, second wave feminism, right? There are a variety of other examples of, of what's going on with this, the change in the personhood. Think of early modern China, <clears throat> also in gendered terms, um, by the anti-foot-binding movement, and, and, but the way in which patriarchy gets contested by people who are remaking themselves, and often remaking, you know, sometimes with tragic consequences. There are suicides. There are things that don't go right in this. 
Um, but uh, they, are be, they are at work on themselves. And I think something that is, that we, is an issue of the imaginary is we commonly imagine ourselves as sort of fixed. That, well, we were fixed in childhood. We, got, we came as certain people, and our parents made us this way, and we went to school, and they stopped us being creative, and that's why I can't draw. And, you know, the, and we have this sort of account, and then we are stuck with ourselves. But the truth is most of us, and more, I think, today, um, and more since the Romantic era, and more, you know, we have projects about ourselves. We are the objects of, of small utopian projects of remaking ourselves. And it can be, you know, trivial. I'm, I'm going to become somebody who doesn't bite my fingernails anymore. Or it can be, you know, radical and major. Um, and I'm going to, you know, um, completely remake my life uh, in um, ecological consciousness or, you know, vegetarian. Or I'm going to, you know, and just go over and over all kinds of things. Or I'm going to have a thousand Twitter followers. There you are. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that most of us, middle-class, educated people in the modern world live with several projects of changing ourselves all the time. And they are sources of um, some satisfaction and some stress because we fail to change as we wish ourselves to change, right? But we, but we work on ourselves. We, we care for ourselves in the Foucaultian sense, but we literally make projects of making ourselves. And that can be I'm going to go to school at the LSC and I'm going to get a degree and then I'm going to get a job and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to get promoted and I'm going to not be distracted. But it can also be very different kinds of, of work on ourselves um, that is, is full of dissonance as people adjust to and try to um, uh, organize their sexuality or their personal relationships or whatever else it is. The, <clears throat> um, and I think the way in which we talk about these things, including the way in which I talked about it, so I'll be self-critical of this, is, <laughs> tends to leave out the emotions, right? So I, I didn't deal very much with that. And the issue of why is imagination frightening sometimes that comes up? And why, is, why are we sometimes, why do we think creativity is always a good word and in fact um, then we get frightened of it at the same time, right? So if creativity can be harnessed to making new devices for Apple computers, it's always good. But um, we, we actually worry about it. Um, all right, I'll give a quick answer, George, um, which is, um, of course, this is a labile technology that can go either way, but I worry that virtual reality is going to be substituted for um, imagination rather than um, put in the service of it. Okay, we're going to have to stop there. Um, thank you, everyone. Um, for your-